Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written lots of stuff. I am a senior editor uh, for Touchstone Magazine, and I uh, have written a book recently called In the House of Tom Bombadil. But enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, uh, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, freelance uh, teacher, speaker, writer, all kinds of stuff. All right, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach theology and ethics. Uh, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and do a bunch of other things, too. <laughs> I won't go through the list, um, but uh, theology is my main preoccupation. <laughs> so uh, we are just the three of us today, and uh, it's my day. So I decided that I'd like to focus in on something I wrote for World Magazine. I, I wrote an ob an op-ed on their for their online presence, uh, and the title of the uh, the op-ed was "Begotten, Not Made," and it was in response to something I I had read in um, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and um, so I subscribed to the Wall Street Journal, which means I get to see you know stuff on an ongoing basis uh, from that publication, and something in the Weekend Edition. Uh, for Saturday and Sunday, October 28th and 29th, uh, caught my attention. And the title of the article is, What If Men Could Make Their Own Egg Cells? What If Men Could Make Their Own Egg Cells? Now, now this might sound like uh, just something straight out of uh, Huxley's you know, Brave New World. Uh, in, in a way, it is. Uh, but it's, it's not uh, just a rhetorical question. Uh, there are people working on this, and they've made, quote, progress. <laughs> uh, there are actually scientists who have managed to turn the skin cells of male mice into eggs, or I, I don't know how they did this, but uh, basically we're talking about bioengineering, and have been able to fertilize them, and now we have mice that uh, were produced without the uh, the uh, presence or participation of a female mouse. So uh, what we have uh, is a kind of, um, I think, situation that uh, I think in a larger frame of reference gets me thinking about not just this kind of transhuman sort of project that is evidenced by evinced by this particular episode or this particular matter. But a larger question, and, and, and one that I think we've talked about on the show before and I'd like to get into a little bit, and that is uh, what should be our uh, disposition toward just technology in general and what kinds of boundaries should we... Uh, work to establish to demarcate say things that are simply too sacred to mess with and other stuff and that leads to a whole other set of questions but i think that's a good enough place to start this is after all the sort of thing that you know c.s lewis was thinking about when he you know wrote abolition of man and and that hideous strength and so forth so this is not like a new it goes back to Mary Shelley, you know, <laughs> it's not like a new thing, 
but uh, you know, it it is also sort of relevant uh, with regard to other things that maybe are not, not biological in character. For example, artificial intelligence. Anyway, I've I've, I've sort of you know, lob some softballs for you guys to hit out of the ballpark. Uh, let's hear what you have to say. Any thoughts? Well, let me let me just interrupt right away because we're not dealing with a situation even with the mice where female mice weren't involved. Well, we true. don't have an artificial uterus. Well, I not don't yet. know. They're working know, on it, but they, we no. don't have that yet. So it had to be done by artificial insemination. Yeah, well, I don't in, know. In vitro, yeah, whatever. That's not the right word. But yeah, through the normal in vitro process. Well, I, I don't know if that's entirely true with regard to the mice. Perhaps you're correct. Uh, but I do think that um, there are, as you noted, uh, efforts underway uh, to uh, keep this process entirely free from the sort of the, sort of the involvement of women. And uh, artificial uterus is part of that project. But let's just assume that they're able to pull it off. Um, I, I mean, I, I think as a Christian, I think the place to begin with is recognizing that we have an obligation um, to speak against heresy. And one of the heresies that I don't think we've been loud enough with because we've embraced a lot of it has been we have basically implicitly adopted a lot of the vision that underwrites mod modernity and modern science because it is a heresy. It takes from Christianity certain things about the human being and the human capacity and the human calling to you know, have dominion but it rips them from its theological parameters given in truth and creates an alternative theology that basically allows them to run wild. Um, you know, what, uh, what Chesterton called truths gone mad. And so when these truths go mad, which you're seeing here, all the old limitations that Christianity put on human beings in terms of, you know, for example, limiting their curiosity, right? The old vice of curiosity, for example. These things were given not simply as suggestions, but as basically warnings that if you transgress this limit, you've entered terrain that is, in one sense of the word, damnable, you know, like all heresies are, but also destructive. And I think that we have to be willing to pluck out the heresies that underwrite the current vision uh, of science and its aim to basically not recognize any limits, kinds, natures, and purposes. And we need to go to war with it. And that war needs to be saying, this is territory you shouldn't be going and we're not going to go. And, you know, again, we may not be able to change things top-down power that way, but we can at least not be guilty of, of contributing to it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm completely on board uh, with you there, Tom. The challenge, though, is um, I think twofold. One is you note that we have been a little too well, not, not maybe not little, maybe far too uh, willing to be carried along uh, uncritically by technological developments. Um, there's a kind of um, technophilia that you find in some parts of the Christian world, you know, 
where every sort of development is uh, even evidence of the of the you know the the near arrival of the parousia. <laughs> you yeah. know, you know what yeah. I'm getting at. You know, and and there's uh, I think a naivete even about technologies which uh, don't intrude directly upon you know the biological yeah. sort of uh, a sort of domain, but still have a, a biological and definitely a spiritual. Uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, yeah, implication or impact. Um, you know, an example would be smartphones. Smartphones do have a, have an influence in the way our brains work. So there's, it's not as though, you know, because it's outside of my body, it doesn't have an influence on my body. It does, and yeah. we we know that, for example, these people in Silicon Valley are pretty. Uh, unprincipled in terms of uh, how they go about developing the technologies to, to hook people. Uh, we've got the documentation on that. We know that young uh, teenage girls in particular uh, are harmed by this stuff. Uh, and it doesn't seem to make a difference, even in the Christian community, uh, even among people who ought to know better. Uh, now, they'll, they'll be uh, disturbed by maybe uh, what people watch. But they're not they're not disturbed by what this stuff is actually doing to the bodies of kids. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some, one, one sometimes oh go ahead, Glenn. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the things going back to, to your case um of the uh uh turning male skin cells into eggs, uh one of the things that is really striking to me about that is it seems like it's a complete attempt to erase women. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially when you add artificial wombs and things like that. Um, you, you are, you know, you'll notice they're not using skin cells of women to create sperm. Yeah, right. You know, it it really looks to me like an attempt to to erase women. I mean, in, in a more literal sense, the way we usually use that phrase. Yeah, let me read you uh, a piece uh, from the article. This is by, uh, the, the piece uh, is by Amy uh, Doxer Marcus. And um, she, uh, well, I'll read the first three paragraphs. Uh, the Japanese biologist Katashuhiko Hayashi, Hash, <laughs> I think that's how it's pronounced, said earlier this year that he believes it'll be possible to create a human egg from skin cells within a decade. He and his colleagues have already turned skin cells from male mice into mouse eggs and used them to breed baby mice. Matt uh, Krisilov, executive officer of Conception Biosciences, has dozens of scientists working at a lab in Berkeley, California, of course, trying to make eggs outside ovaries. Such a technique could allow women to have biological children later in life. So there's your wedge. Uh, Krisilov, mm -hmm. who is gay, says the technology known as in vitro gametogenesis, uh, gametogenesis, I think that's how it's pronounced, or gam gam gametogenesis, that's probably how it's pronounced, gametogenesis, or IVG, could also help male couples have biological children without anyone else's genes. So to your point, Glenn, uh, the, this particular scientist uh, has got a, an agenda directly, uh, you know, 
along the lines that you have outlined, this guy wants kids without women involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without their genes. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't yeah. think they're going to have any objection to um, Im- uh, implanting this in a woman so that her uterus will gestate it. But that's well, about it. I agree, but I, I, I do but know I that... Think, you know, again, the artificial uterus is, is something yeah. they are working on. Yeah, they get into that later in the in the article. Mm. So, but you're right. Well, and, I mean, it, here it, again, this is you, an attempt to, to, to kind of do a round, right? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. Well, and here again, you have basically the the modern religion um, and its heresy taking a step away from, well, basically an all-out assault on the created order that Christendom basically, you know, affirmed and, and tried to to enact. And what you have there is the leveling of kinds and differences um, and flattening them. And basically, I mean, you, you see, you saw, it, of course, earlier generations with, the, you know, basically the sexes are equal, right? Um, no difference, ultimately, and they should be at, open to all avenues and access of power, nothing limiting them. Um, but then you have that, that same drive towards the flattening of basically family structure. So now you can have any lifestyle and any kind of arrangement is should be equally valued because we are self-determining these and we are self-determining agents, and that is what is God in all of this. And so now we have the sciences increasingly being able for us not to be limited by nature or civilizational pushback, and we are allowed to actually enact those fantasies in reality in some way. And so this is this is what you're getting. You're getting the the kind of outflow consequences of those initial heretical moves and and the the view of the human that went with it. So I, I'm with you completely, Tom. But here's the challenge: mm-hmm. uh, we live in a world where uh, increasingly uh, the argument that you just made falls on deaf ears. Sure. So you know, basically, people say, "Okay, it's a heresy." Well, I'm a heretic. Big deal. Yeah. Or, um, you know, are you trying to impose your religion on the rest of us? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, somewhere along the line, the appeal to values uh, have to be tied to some truths. And as Christians, we believe uh, Christian doctrines uh, are, uh, you know, obviously connected to uh, the will and uh, the intentions of the Creator. But how how do we make this case in a world where even natural law is something yeah. that people dismiss? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a ch- that, that is a challenge of this particular monster, isn't it? I mean, now that created kinds and the intelligibility of the created order has been eradicated and you have wills <laughs> that have been centralized, um, any appeal to reason basically does just look like an attempt to place a limit on another will. And so you're not going to get a top-down, this is my point, you're not going to get a top-down argument that is going to drag along the unwilling. Um, And so this places us at a very different set of parameters. One is we have to rely on spiritual resources because we're dealing with something that I don't think just general arguments in a society that embraces arguments, because they don't. Um, um, secondly, you either have worldly power, or divine power that is actually going to change this. We don't look like at the moment we have worldly power. 
Um, so, so we're, we're set off. So what resources do we have as Christians? And this is my point is, is that we don't have to go along with it and we can actually instruct our communities about the heretical and, you know, the severe consequences of what is coming down the road. And we can become alternative, um, you know, communities that live out the truth at a time when it is fundamentally rejected um, by everyone else. I, I don't know what else we fully can do at this point other than be faithful to what we've been given in the deposit that we have and then explicating it so that we can at least communicate it as best as we can to the society around us why we don't go along with it, why we draw the lines where we do, why we're not going to be forced into it. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. Again, I'm with you 100%. You got something there, Glenn? Yeah, there, there are some ways that you can appeal to ethics that are still generally accepted. Um, so, for example, it is considered unethical to, to do medical experimentation on people without their consent. As soon as you prevented anybody, <laughs> well, yeah, but but as soon as you Welcome start doing things like what we're talking about here, you are functionally conducting experiments on the people you are producing. Oh, I agree. You know, yeah. so so there are ways of working within existing ethical frameworks to. I don't think they'll stop anything, but they may at least introduce a little bit of hesitation. I I, yeah. I agree with you; it hasn't really stopped much. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, I think that I think that that's a route we can use. But essentially, Tom's right. What we have to do is we have to rely on the resources that God has given us, uh, our own teaching and speaking voices, our communities. Uh, but along with that, we have to rely on the spiritual resources as well, prayer and um, you know the work of the Spirit. Yeah, I'm completely on board. The thing though that we need to do as well is count the cost, and I don't think many people are doing much counting, let alone a paying. <laughs> so so what, what I think this, this presents to us is the prospect of being the neo-Amish uh, because there are going to be more and more people who avail themselves of these technologies that uh, we cannot reconcile with the Christian faith. Um, even in the most... Um, you know, sort of a technophiliac way, you know. Mm -hmm. So the people I know who are just really enthusiasts for technology never really think about how it, it sort of biologically in, it sort of uh, impinges upon uh, us. Mm -hmm. But in this particular matter, it's an, it's undeniable. I mean, this, this is something that's altering uh, what it means to be uh, a part of a family, uh, this is what it is altering at a, at a physical level, a biological level. Now, a lot of things have gone on socially to prepare us for this moment, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's, a, it's another matter when you actually are dealing with somebody. So let's just imagine ourselves 20 years down the road being introduced to some guy who literally does not have a mother and has not had a mother uh, or had any sort of female presence in his life, his, his family, so to speak, uh, is entirely male. Uh, and what does that do to your th thinking? I mean, the way you look at the world, the way you understand family life. Okay, let's say this person visits our church. Uh, what do we do with this guy? Um, 
There, there are a number of things that I think um, none of I, I haven't come across anybody who who really uh, is analyzing this very very thoroughly, uh, at least in the circles I'm part of. Uh, there's a, a recoiling at the transhumanist project. Yeah, uh, but there's not much analysis uh, when it comes to the very nature of technology and how um, this has always been kind of a problem. I mean, we can go back to the Phaedrus with Plato. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, people who are who think that maybe this is having second thoughts about technology is a new thing. Just go back yeah. to that. Was, was yeah. it in the Phaedrus yeah. that that Socrates was complaining about writing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, <laughs> he quotes the, the myth from Egypt about the introduction of writing by the gods. And he, he's, he's, <laughs> what his point is, is, is not that writing in and of itself is a bad thing, but how it's going to affect uh, our yeah. lives, particularly in the exercise of memory. So his, his point is that we're going to get lazy. And yeah. is it hard to argue with that? I mean, I'm not saying well, that... The, inter the internet and Google makes it worse. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I think, but I think that's the thing. So is it, we have this notion that it's all, uh, you know, addition and no subtraction, that there's no trade-off. Yeah. I, I'd be happy if we just uh, accepted new technologies, but understood that we lose things when we, we adopt them. It's not just plus, it's there is some subtraction. Yeah. Right. You know, the interesting thing is this is moving in a bit of a different direction, but I, I was just reading a book where the author, uh, who's a religious studies professor, um, she's working on emerging religions surrounding technology, actual UFOs, all of this kind of thing. Wow. Um, fascinating book. But she interviewed someone who is deep into AI, one of the real pioneers in this thing. And a significant percentage, apparently, of the people who are in a position like her believe that AI, particularly when we're dealing with nanocomputing and things like that, is actually tapping into a non-human intelligence and that this provides an interface for that into our world. Yeah, that, that's now, something that the you most know, again, recent... It, it, it's a technological thing, but but in this case, if they're right, and even if they're wrong, they're they're directly trying to mess with things that are operating at a well, they would argue transcendent level, but but a level certainly beyond beyond our ability to understand, to know, or whatever. Yeah, the most recent edition of uh, Touchstone. Uh, addresses this. There's, a, there's an yeah. article by Paul Kings North. It's the cover yeah. story. It's a fairly lengthy article, and it's really well written. But I saw some some people who responded to it quite naively and dismissively. Mm -hmm. They hadn't even read it, for one thing. But they also, I think, failed to appreciate uh, the fact that uh, something may not be what people think it is but can still have some kind of demonic uh, sort of uh, char character. Uh, so, for example, you know, the, the example I, I think of is when we think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, well, there's nothing to idols. They just yeah. wood and stuff. Then two chapters later, he says, no, there's, de there's demons behind them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on the one hand, there's nothing yeah. to them, and yet they're 
There's something the, behind them. There is something yeah. behind them. So the, the idea that oh, it's just software doesn't make, uh, it's not an argument. Um, you could just say that you and I are just biology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I need to say, I think Kings North went way too far with Rudolf Steiner on that particular article. Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. uh, I think that he's right, that there is a real danger here, although I don't think he's identified quite the right one. But that's, yeah. you know, that, that's my read on it. Yeah, well, I, I think in that article, he, he um, I think the thing that concerned him uh, primarily was what the programmers thought they were up to. Right. They're trying to create God. Uh, mm -hmm. They really do have theological, sort of uh, a theological understanding of the project. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think this takes it back to when Christianity entered the scene, it understood fundamentally, especially you see it in the baptismal liturgy, that when you are baptized in the name of Christ, you are not placed into a world that is value neutral. You are placed into a world in which you are to go to battle, and you, are, you went to battle against the ancient order, which was bound up with the gods, right? And now here in, in this name. Modernity basically did the same thing. It mimicked Christianity and post-modernity likewise in going to war against, quote-unquote, the Christian God and Christianity and its impact on things. So technology has, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I can sever out technology in a neutral sense in terms of the way we all benefit from it, from the motivations that underwrite the science and its, its aims. And those things have, been not, have not been weaned off those rejections of Christianity. And so territory is wide open for the demonic and the, the, you know, is what, you know, the return of the strong gods, but coming back sevenfold, if you will. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that sort of sevenfold return after Christianity came and swept the house clean, if you will. And uh, that, that's what we're, we're having to contend with. So to, to point out, I think both of you do well, the spiritual nature of this cannot be it cannot be stressed enough. I think that is really where what we're dealing with in full. And there is something very, very directly demonic in the kinds of biological experimentation they're trying to do do um, that Chris uh, jumped off of. I mean, yeah. we, we have to recognize that this isn't just about technology. It's not even about the autonomous will. It's about yeah. the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, the prince of the power of the air and all of that, that is very deliberately um, working through humanity to undermine God, God's good design. Right. I think, you know, it's worth considering Jacques Ellul and his arguments um, in this particular respect because Ellul uh, – noted in, I think it's technological society, uh, and then uh, also in uh, his work on the city, that mm -hmm. essentially technique mm -hmm. uh, and tech, tech, uh, technology obviously have a common root. In other words, there's a, an effort that we uh, under, you know, sort of uh, are engaged in when we use techniques to get things that we want from people. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you can sales techniques, for example, you know, you can learn, uh, you know, what are the, the, be the best approaches to get people to buy whatever you're selling. Yeah. And some of that has, 
infiltrated the church. You know, we've talked a little bit about the church growth movement, but a lot of the church growth movement is um, is focused on technique. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't, uh, you know, things that we're supposed to do. I mean, obviously, prayer, evangelizing, you know, these things are, uh, in a certain sense, uh, you know, things that we can understand as techniques. But at least with those things, what we're doing is we're appealing to the Creator, and we're trying to speak uh, and, and repeat what the Creator has declared, and not just take matters up into our own hands and and kind of manage things into a a, a state that we we you know we'd like to see uh, come about. Um, and the, so the the line of demarcation between technique and sort of you know, scientific management and scientific management theory and actually, you know, creating machines to do stuff is not so great. <laughs> you know, it's not, the, the difference is not, is not as big as we, as we maybe uh, would like to think. And one of the things that Delul does, particularly as he's, he's reflecting on the origins of the, of the city, who's the first city builder? Remember? Cain. <laughs> and all of the yeah. arts... <laughs> Uh, yeah. are uh, the works of his children. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so there's a sense in which, uh, you know, what, what Bilul is saying is that these things are tinctured from the start. It's not as though we're dealing with uh, things that uh, aren't already, in some sense, uh, under the influence of evil. Isn't it interesting that those first chapters of Genesis give you a fair amount of detail about what the children of Cain are doing, but not what the children of Seth are doing. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we know we know that, uh, you know, calling upon the Lord <laughs> is, is one of the things that they do. <laughs> right. Yeah, and they don't, they don't, they don't build towers to Babel and they don't, you know. (laughs) That's that's right. That's right. But, but I don't, I don't sense. So here's the thing. Alul is reformed or was reformed. I mean, he was a reformed uh, thinker. He had a huge uh, intellectual, uh, you know, sort of impact uh, on the world far outside of the reformed world. But within the reformed world, who reads Alul? Uh, besides guys like us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I, I think likewise, his his work on propaganda is similar, even though he wasn't measuring it strictly from a scientific understanding, the insights he brought into it at a, at a time of its kind of early stages in, in terms of, you know, modern technology. Um, is, it was just brilliant analysis. And you really, I think he wrote, what was the other work he wrote on? It's something, the demonic... Uh, Oh, I can't, the title oh, he wrote so much stuff. I yeah. tell you, the, the book that changed my, that really had a big impact on me was my first first acquaintance with him was uh, The Politics of Man and the Politics of God. Yeah, yeah. And that was a powerful book. But another one is The Humiliation of the Word. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what he's, what he's addressing there is the triumph of the image over the word. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's making a case for the word as a good reformed theologian should. <laughs> and, and when did he write that? Back in the 70s? Yeah, I think in the 70s or 60s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, so imagine what he would have to say about now. <laughs> I know, I know. He saw it coming, I, I can say yep. that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, the book I'm referring to was The New Demons. I mean, that he was kind of seeing what yeah. was, he was, he was seeing it, and he was, he was, he was labeling it correctly. Yeah. 
Why, why is it that we don't have this ability to do that anymore? Or Now, obviously, he's, he's a remarkable man thinker. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to imply that we can all do what he did, but, yeah. uh, but at the same time, he had the ability to, to see into things uh, and to see connections that I just don't see many people making today. You know, I think the key is that he asked questions and we don't, we just simply look at what's here and we, we, um, we just sort of assume this is the way it should be. And yeah. he had the he had the rare ability, I think, to look at the world around him and and ask the question, is this right? Is this good? Where does this lead? And so on. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of an odd one. But in terms of technology, um, I'm reminded of Rock Island from The Music Man. It's the opening almost rap piece. And it's yeah. a bunch of traveling salesmen talking about oh, the yeah. problems of traveling salesmen. You know, that, yeah. that you know, you, you, you can't, you, you know, it, it's just so much harder. And one of them says, it's the Model T Ford made the trouble, made the people want to go, want to get, want to get up and go seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 14, 22, 23 miles to the county seat. Who wants to patronize a little bitty two by four kind of store anymore? Right. <laughs> you know, so what they saw now, now that it's kind of a silly example, but the guy, the guy said, look, in essence, what the guy's argument was, as soon as you get the car, this way of life changes yeah. and it makes it really hard for the people who are in that profession to do what they do. Now let's take that and extend it one step further. What does it do to the local church? Right. Right. You know, yeah, we, well, we no longer yeah. live, well, most of us are no longer living in situations where there is a neighborhood parish that everybody goes to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. So, you know, like in my church and we've got people who drive 45 minutes to, yeah. to be with us or even more. And, you know, and we so, think of that as normal. And the right. question is, what does it do to the church's community? We don't yeah. ask the question. And that, I think that's the thing. So to kind of put this, uh, so some listeners out there who may be more technophiliacs than technophobes, let me just mm -hmm. assure you, I think of myself as a techno-realist. I'm not <laughs> like anti-tech. I'm not, uh, yeah. not a Luddite. I just don't want to be naive. I just don't want to yeah. be a guy who just thinks every new thing is like the greatest and we just yeah. need to alter our lives and incorporate this new thing into our lives and alter our lives without even thinking. Yeah. To me, that's, that's just, well, it's thoughtless and we need to think about trade-offs. So, you know, here's an example. Uh, I love air conditioning. I think air conditioning is absolutely great. Yeah. I can't imagine the life without air conditioning, <laughs> but once upon a time there was no air conditioning. And yeah. what did people do? Yeah. Well, before air conditioning, they sat out on the porch in the mm -hmm. evening as the house cooled down and the porches were set up in such a way that you could see your neighbor and say, hey, neighbor. Yeah. And yeah. what it did is, is this discomfort uh, forced people into situations where they were more convivial. They yeah. were outside, they were hanging out at night, watching you know, the stars come out, watching the lightning bugs, you know, sitting around drinking iced tea or, or you know, cold beer or whatever on the front porch and just 
you know, and there was no television, you know, uh, you know, uh, screen. There was just the darkness and the cool air and trying to get some relief from the heat of the day. Yeah. Now is, is, uh, it, you know, a net plus that we have air conditioning? I'd say yes. <laughs> but can we at least admit that we lost something in the yeah. process? Yeah. Well, and there, and I think there are rapid losses as we see rapid developments in technology to where we don't even have the ability to digest all the things going on. That's one side of it. Um, and, you know, I, and I think, you know, there are some, some things, like you say, that that we, we all kind of have taken for granted all of our lives that was a radical disruption in, say, my grandparents' life. And they saw that they in, maybe worried about, you know, what was coming coming later. Um, but I think one of the things you notice now is at least those technologies, and they did do damage and they do have their side effects, but at least they were governed still by a modernity that still had limits that it did hang on to from the Christian vision. As post-modernity and nihilism take over, you basically have all the kind of areas that were once definable no longer definable. The difference between male and female, gone. The difference between, you know, uh, what characterizes a family, gone. What characterizes a, a normal relationship, gone. Now procreation can be done completely, you know, basically now we can move it outside of the human beings altogether, gone. So our reference points that God gave us to have proper identities as the creatures we are and relate to each other in healthy ways, are now being eroded, if not, you know, taken away by this. And so technology is just steamrolling in directions, I think, that even, you know, the air condition and things like that, even though they came with with consequences and they helped create this condition, um, didn't quite, you know, didn't quite step up to what we're dealing with now. Yep. Well, I guess... The thing I'd like to do at this point is I think we've thought a little bit about, okay, there should be some boundaries um, and we might not be able to make a case to our unbelieving neighbors when it comes to where the boundaries should lie. How do we make the case even in our churches when we have so many who... Uh, are unwilling to even pay uh, a price that our ancestors would have thought of as being just a normal consequence of becoming a Christian. So, for example, I was listening to Meg Besham uh, yesterday on another podcast, and she's got a book that uh, she's got coming out. And one of the themes, I believe, in that book has to do with how the LGBTQ uh, uh, kind of um, tsunami has swept over the church and swept away people like, you know, Andy Stanley and other people that we, you know, maybe thought would ha have the resources to resist. And they're not. Uh, they're just basically trying to massage things in such a way that they can kind of hold their institutions together, but at the same time accommodate everything uh, that's coming along. Uh, how do we make a case with, say, you know, you know, this particular uh, phenomenon, you know, the LGBTQ thing, uh, 
we're we're in some sense i think um failing to uh you know my own my old denomination i i i i saw that they didn't have the resources to to resist the pressure that i knew was coming uh but the pressure that has uh, you know sort of been exercised here is even greater than i anticipated <laughs> and yeah. it's sweeping away uh some things that i thought would be able to like withstand the pressure. I mean, let's just take a look at what's going on in Catholicism. All my Catholic friends feel like uh, this current Pope has just betrayed the faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now they're, they're conflicted because on the, on the one hand, they, they have a, a strong commitment to, you know, so, you know, sort of orthodox understandings of sexuality and at the same time, um, you know, their very church, you know, is defined by its fidelity to the Pope. And so, so they're, they're torn. Yeah. Um, but if, if, if Catholicism, this enormous and ancient institution, is capitulating, you know, what about little Bob and his Bible study down the street? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. In some ways, it may be easier for Bob... For, for Bob than for the church because he isn't a big institution and he isn't subject to the same kinds of of uh, uh, pressures. But if you go instead of Bob in his Bible study to Pastor Peter in his pulpit, um, I like the alliteration there, um, <laughs> then then that that puts a different set of that that changes the equation a bit. Like I said, the individual Bible study, you know, you, you can get people who will be able to handle it there. But when the pressures start coming at churches, it ends up being a different, uh, I think it ends up being really a different uh, matter. And I think that the Catholic Church is, is what happens under that pressure writ large. Yeah. Now, we know that Catholicism has gone through a number of crises over the years, and there have been multiple popes at the same time, and just <laughs> there's all kinds of mess. Yeah. So I'm not saying the story is over for that uh, that church, but at the same time, things don't look good. What you don't have, what I think is different this time, is you you have popes that will do things like issue proclamations, bulls or whatever, that talk about enhancing their power. Or they will uh, declare ex cathedra the Immaculate Conception of Mary. It's an idea that had been circulating in the church for a while. What you don't yeah. see and what you're seeing now is the Pope backing a complete rewriting of the historic theological understanding of sexuality and sexual ethics. That, that yeah. suddenly... It's not just adding new things into the mix. It's changing the faith that the Catholic Church has always proclaimed. And yeah. I think uh, that's, Protestants— That's a significant difference. And I think Protestants who are sort of, you know, uh, strong in their anti-Catholicism fail to appreciate just how uh, the faithfulness of Catholicism on sort of sexual ethics— has helped them for <laughs> centuries. So yeah, you can you know, you can spend a lot of time condemning the pope and call him the antichrist all you want, but you still had uh somebody who agreed with you 
that, um, you know, homosexuality is a sin. Yeah. <laughs> Abortion yeah, is a sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Classic right. Christian ethics anchored in the historic faith were embraced. Uh, classical orthodoxy in terms of sexual ethics. I mean, that was something that you could count on. Now, it's interesting because I remember when Karl Barth during Vatican II came later to discuss the Protestant critique of, you know, that they were open to listening to. And one of the things he told them is they capitulated too much to modernity that in their attempts to update, they were importing a lot of the, the assumptions of modernity that Christians shouldn't be, be adopting. And, of course, his target was always, you know, anthropology had replaced Christian theology. And so that, that, that rigorous Christocentric, you know, Christ-centered approach to reading these things should not be abandoned in updating the, ch the church in terms of its its witness and mission. And so, you know, again, you don't know to what extent this stuff is now, you know, starting to bear fruit. I mean, I've read those documents and I still see a, a strong commitment to historic orthodoxy, but he could see things coming that, you know, I'm, I, I'm not able to. And I think that's the same way with all of our denominations. We don't know how much we have basically bought into the hidden assumptions of the modern world in our very own readings of scripture and our very own conservatism and our very own claims. And this is one of the things I think rich, a rich engagement with our sources and our and, and and theological tradition at least helps us expose some of those things about ourselves. Instead of just attacking, for example, Plato because he was you know, also shaped by the spirit of his age, what if reading Plato can sometimes expose to me all those areas that I'm committed to to my age? So there is an important investment in engaging theological tradition um, without just simply, you know, basically saying that it has a, no value for us. And Lewis used to say the same thing. Um, reading these old authors help expose my own bias, my own my own being locked into the idols of this age. And, you know, especially scripture, but we even read scripture as moderns and we import a right. lot of the assumptions. And I mean, Andy Stanley is a case in point. You can go from his own father's church to his within a generation and it's already. That's yeah, unbelievable. It, yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. Well, this is the thing that Meg Besham was getting into is that uh, people like Stanley have been targeted. So for the longest time, you know, we evangelicals uh, enjoyed uh, basically an upside to our uh, peripheral status. The upside was uh, people don't spend a lot of time trying to to to, to target us. <laughs> they more or less just ignore us. <laughs> now they're not content to ignore us. That's right. We're like the last bastion. Yeah. Of biblical orthodoxy and and uh, biblical sexual ethics yeah. that must be brought down. Yeah, and so you know she notes in some of her research that yes, we have been targeted. It's not you're you're not imagining things. That's right. Um, there there is a lot of money, and there are programs that have been established and very sophisticated ones. Yeah, to uh, infiltrate uh, evangelical churches yeah. and bring them along. So I remember when I was at Harvard Divinity School, uh, I recall, uh, you know, one of the benefits of being in a place like that is that you get to see kind of the, you know, the opposition, uh, in the raw, so to speak. And I remember, uh, reading on a bulletin board, uh, there was a, going to be a, a gathering of people. This is in the, in the mid 1990s, a gathering of students 
to brainstorm on how to penetrate the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. Now, they, what did that mean? Well, they were they were particularly interested in in sort of of uh, promoting, you know, their the sexual revolution in the Southern yeah. Baptist Convention, and we've seen that they they've had a few success stories. You know, yeah. they've they've had, so it wasn't as though. You know, you're just making it up. Your your imaginations run away with you. You know, you're paranoid. No, no, <laughs> we really are targeted. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and and I, you know, one of the things you notice, you know, classically trusted evangelical book distributors, you know, start to yeah. sell that you know book for you know the stay at home mom homeschooler that happens to be importing with the right language and nuance a lot of things that basically cause them to become dissatisfied with, you know, the classic Christian way of understanding things or not turning to its riches to address it, and that discontentment settling in. Um, I've also seen, you know, over and over again, people that were involved in, you know, the church vigorously, um, all of a sudden, you know, slip out and embrace the new religion, you know, the one that affirms all the different, you know, alphabet and everything else. Seeing that as the genuine article of, you know, full embrace and love rather than basically, you know, br- you know, having the measure of truth to govern our understanding and love and relationships and, and the best way to respond in love. And so these things slip in and they creep in. And yes, they are intentionally targeting us, our children, our families. And, you know, I, I often talk, you know, what what is, you know, you think even socially, um, you know, first of all, you had to get kind of the create the Christian God out of the picture, you know, and so your modern naturalism and humanism did that. But the next reminder, of course, of that is, of course, some kind of patriarchy and male headship, right? I mean, they're, they're the fatherhood of God now, has to be kind of eliminated. So they flatten the sexes. Well, well, now still that image is getting through. So now you have to get rid of, you know, basically the significance of being made in the image of God altogether. And, and so h- humanity becomes a problem itself. We talked about that on the last show. Um, but the children basically being given nothing and literally nothing to put in its place is basically a a psychological death sentence on those children to which we understand now why therapy is, you know, to the point where you don't have enough therapists to deal with the issues going on. I mean, just think of what happens if you are an image bearer of God and your principal relationships are the the Christian family, if you will, or the God-given created family. If that is your reference point to make the world make sense and all that has been taken out, what do we have there? And that, that is what our churches are, are also having to contend with. There's no reference point to help those along that have been hurt by all of this. And it seems like the zealotry of people that are miserable to make everyone else miserable is really what drives their, their, uh, their spiritual vision. Yeah, yeah well, I think that's a very good point. Uh, misery loves company. Uh, and what that means is that <laughs> yeah. uh, other miserable people need to be there for me to, uh, you know, find some solace. It, it goes uh, and, beyond and, that. You have to eliminate anybody that is a witness against your sin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a profound point, Glenn. Now, how, we've kind of gone a, a, a fair distance from 
but on the other hand, not the the this you know the starting point of this conversation. So the starting point was technology and uh, how technology uh, you know it has penetrated a boundary that we we had assumed would it would never uh, need to be reinforced, and that is the distinction between the machine and the human. So now we think of the human being as just another kind of machine. Um, the uh, understanding of the cosmos has now become the understanding of the human. And that's always the way it is. You know, there's going to be some kind of relationship between the big picture and the small picture. They've got to be harmonized. They, they can't be, uh, there can't be one set of rules for human beings and another set of rules for the cosmos. Um, basically, it's all, you know, sort of one con continuous thing, which brings me to, I think, uh, a pretty radical proposal. I think that churches need to, and I think you know, leaders and pastors and so forth, need to recover uh, an eye for purpose and a presence in the larger world. Um, I think we give some lip service to that. What I mean by lip service is like when I go outside on a you know on a on a clear night and I see the stars, you know, I feel so much closer to God. <laughs> that kind of thing. We give we give lip service to that, but in terms of the courses of our daily lives, we don't actually see uh, purposes in things. Uh, we think that we are the ones who impose our purposes on things. And this gets me back to sort of the technological dimension of this. Um, we have a way of thinking about technology as uh, exclusively, uh, you know, human beings imposing their purposes upon a meaningless world. That's essentially it. And I think many Christians think that's really the way it is. Yeah. They don't, they don't think that there are intrinsic purposes to things except when it comes to the families, like the family is like this, this little bubble. And now yeah. the bubble has been penetrated and now they're starting to get a little alarmed because they thought that the bubble would be able to sort of maintain its bubbleness <laughs> and yeah. not be popped by, by these developments. And now the popping is occurring and they're, uh, they're capitulating rather than recover a larger vision of God's glory in the world, they're actually just going over to the other side. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. We, we've, we've forgotten our riches. I mean, pure and simple. I mean, when you understand that we have an incomparable understanding of God and reality, who God is, what God is, um, we tend to think, again, as God is the biggest thing around that somehow is here to put a stamp on my best life now. Um, that, is a, that is a cheap inversion of, of the genuine article. Um, when you see in Scripture someone encounter the living God, the utter realization of who they are and who God is in relationship to them and the way in which glory is the thing longed after in all of our purposes— um, to know the creator and all things relative to the creator, and therefore also to know all things relative to the creator. The things aren't sitting around just as arbitrary things for my construction and my purposes. 
that they actually have an inherent gift to me and I have an inherent gift to them. And that relationality has a certain character to it, like the family, like father and wife, you know, husband and wife and father and children. And then the kind of ways that societies orient themselves around those goods. Then none of these things are arbitrary, that they all are stamped with something the creator has given and the glory of the creator through them. And there is therefore a certain delight and true fulfilling of our natures. And that's the other thing. It, this kind of fulfillment is drinking ultimately of a water unto which you will never thirst again. And you get tastes of it when you're ordered the right way with family, with children, with generations, with prosperity the right way. And so the, these things um, we do have to highlight. We don't need to run to the other side and think that their cheap substitutes somehow have something better to offer. You know, one thing that occurs to me here is, you know, what you're talking about, Chris, is what amounts to being a sacramental view of the world. And mm -hmm. the Orthodox are really good at that. The Orthodox have their issues, but... They're really good at that. It's one of one of the things that they excel at. And I wonder if that might be part of the explanation for why it is that they have no trouble attracting men, unlike yeah. Protestants or Catholics. Yeah, I think that's a good yeah. point, Glenn. I think I I think I'd like to tie in Tolkien <laughs> to this as well. Mm. So when we think about it's a good idea. Yeah, that's right. that's right. So when we think about Tolkien, you know, we think of, you know, some people and think of him as an, as an escapist, but I think, or, or simply as, a, as an advocate for medieval uh, thinking at the expense of lots of other things. I think he was, you know, as Holly Ordway has brought out, uh, far more uh, relevant to the modern uh, sort of predicament than people assume. So let's think about a couple of things. One is, who is uh, the personification of the sort of technician in Tolkien? Saruman, right? I think everybody would say that. Now, does that mean technology per se or the human arts are in some sense incompatible with uh, the created order? Well, no. Uh, the arts of the elves... I think are worth reflecting on because what we have with the elves is uh, a development of the arts uh, and the, you could say the sciences in a way that strives to develop the inherent properties in the created order. So it's not as though uh, they're just like leaving things alone. You know, you know, it's not like they're like the ants who just, kind of live uh, and, and only uh, just kind of let things kind of take their natural courses. <laughs> the elves uh, uh, are engaged in creating things uh, and preserving things and illuminating things. So I think about Lembas, you know, the, the way bread of the elves, or you think about the cloaks that the, 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 that the, the fellowship, the members of the fellowship received when they were in Lothlorien. You know, there was something about them that was, um, you know, both beautiful and uh, highly practical. Yeah. In other words, these these were these were technological achievements, you could say. Yeah. Um, but they were they were achievements that were, in some sense, uh, 
sort of taking what was potentially present and developing it as opposed to yeah. simply imposing uh, a alien will on things. Uh, I, I want to add a, in a good word for the dwarves here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because I think one of the most fascinating ecological statements Tolkien makes is when Gimli is describing the caves to Legolas. I and actually, agree. I talked about this in an episode several years ago. We were all, all the way back when we were in the corner pug. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he talks about how, you know, how carefully they would work to enhance and open up the beauty of Agorand, the, the glittering caves there. Right. And it is, it is an incredible statement about proper development Mm -hmm. Yeah, of resources. So. Yeah, I think that's right. Long before all of the sort of the greeny people yeah. kind of came on the scene. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we should probably wrap up. We got to that point where we should bring this in uh, to landing, as I've said a million times. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate uh, your support and uh, we encourage you to share this episode. Uh, if you have a way to rate the podcast and you like it, particularly if you like us <laughs> and you have a way to rate us, uh, we, we, we encourage you to do that. We're told, we, you know, we're not techies, but we're told by people who know these about these things that it helps to get the word out. And uh, if you're interested in supporting our work, uh, we ha do have a Patreon page and there are a number of people who give on a monthly basis to this uh, uh, effort and uh, support our program and, and those gifts are appreciated. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon. Amazon.